Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. President Biden heading to the Middle East this week. The White House says he wants to help bring Israel and Saudi Arabia closer together. Comparing Latinos to breakfast tacos, First Lady Dr. Jill Biden is facing backlash for that, although her statement was meant to be a compliment. Gang members, sex offenders, drugs, and lots of them. Those are just some of the things coming across the U.S. southern border. Is this a national security concern? We hear some analysis from a drug enforcement officer. NASA is releasing full-color images from the new James Webb Space Telescope. One of the first images shows never-seen-before ancient galaxies. The leader of the ISIS terrorist organization in Syria was killed in an American airstrike. That's according to a statement released today by the U.S. Central Command. Maher al-Aghal was killed in a drone strike in northwestern Syria and his close associate was injured. U.S. Central Command said al-Aghal was responsible for developing ISIS networks outside of Syria and Iraq where the group has its strongest presence. The Syrian Observatory for Human Rights has chronicled the Syrian civil war for about a decade. It confirmed in a post on its website that al-Aghal was killed. It described him as a former senior ISIS commander who was in command of a Turkish-backed faction. President Biden's heading to the Middle East tonight. The White House says he wants to use the trip to make progress on more normal relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Entity's Jessica Beatty has more. The White House Monday said any normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia will likely take a long time. But Biden's looking to make progress. It is our uh, hope and expectation uh, that as we look out into the future, we can help facilitate Israel's deeper integration into the region across the board, specifically with respect to Israel and Saudi Arabia. Reuters reports the U.S. and Israel are seeking to lay the groundwork for a security alliance with Arab states. It would connect air defense systems to combat Iranian drone attacks in the Middle East, Reuters says, citing sources. Political scientist Eitan Gilboa from Bar-Ilan University reiterates the possibility of a regional defense alliance. Israel and the Sunni Arab countries uh, are expected by then to sponsor uh, an effective defense alliance uh, primarily against uh, Iran's uh, terrorism, violence and manipulations in the region. Washington hopes a defense alliance could pave the way for more normalization deals with Israel. In 2020, under a U.S. diplomatic drive by the Trump administration, Israel normalized relations with four Arab countries. Saudi Arabia gave its blessing, but it stopped short of formally recognizing Israel. Israeli Deputy Foreign Minister Idan Roll Monday said he hopes Biden will come bearing good news regarding Saudi Arabia. Saudi is a very prominent country both in the Muslim world and in the region. And Israel is always working towards expanding the circle of peace and also deepening the, the current ties. Israeli Finance Minister Avigdor Lieberman Monday said he hopes Biden's visit will lead to a common Middle East market that includes Saudi Arabia. It's a challenge that would simply change the reality here from end to end in both the fields of security and of economics. Therefore, I hope the emphasis during Biden's visit will be on creating this new market in the Middle East. Biden's meeting with Israeli leadership first, then he's expected to visit Saudi Arabia. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. After almost 18 months in office, President Biden will make his first trip to the Middle East this week. NTD's Jason Perry spoke with a former special envoy for the Abraham Accords for his analysis. As long as I can remember, 
The Middle East has been a place where we send our young men and our young women to bleed. Arya Lightstone was a special envoy for the Abraham Accords, which under former President Donald Trump normalized relations between Israel and other Middle Eastern countries. Lightstone is also the author of Let My People Know, where he shares his firsthand accounts of implementing the Abraham Accord agreements. So basically I had the, the uh, approval of Jared Kushner and, and President Trump and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who they said the same exact direction, go big and go fast. So we were able to organize chartered planes from the countries where business people could meet each other. We were able to work out these MOUs, these memorandums of understanding that put in place that today, this year, there were over 275,000 Israeli tourists that went to the United Arab Emirates. It's an incredible number of people that travel there for the first time. He had a message for President Biden ahead of his trip to Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I mean, I think we all know this, that you drove to work this morning, you were driven to work this morning, I drove to work this morning. It cost me roughly double what it did a year and a half ago. Uh, we are showing up to Saudi Arabia and talking about energy that meeting is highly different if we show up as an energy independent America. President Biden has the ability to do that in between now and when he gets on the airplane to demonstrate that we as Americans will control our own energy destiny. And if he shows up, the meeting will go significantly differently than if he shows up without unleashing our own power of energy here in the States. He said the second thing Biden should do is call out Iran. There is an enormous amount of belligerence really bad action that stems from Iran, whether it's narcotic terrorism or actual terrorism, Hezbollah, Hamas, Lebanon, Yemen, Gaza, where they perpetuate terror all over the world, literally all over the world, including within our own borders. And, and the Trump administration understood that. It called it out very specifically and it targeted. It said, we'll stand with our allies and we're going to stand against our enemies. Uh, the Biden administration thus far has been far more murky in terms of how much they'll stand with our allies and how far they're going to push back against our enemies. Biden's trip to the Middle East is scheduled for Wednesday, where he will meet with officials in Israel and Saudi Arabia. We reached out to the White House for comment, but we didn't hear back before airtime. Jason Perry, NTD News. President Obrador of Mexico is scheduled to meet President Biden today. The main reason for the visit, discussing migration, which is at the highest it's been in over a decade. President Obrador says he wants migration to be completely legal and to control the flow of migrants. He says he's hoping to reach an agreement on that. Obrador said that other topics to be discussed are support for Central American countries, development programs, security, inflation, and economic support. At the same time, White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says the U.S. expects the two leaders to discuss a common vision for North America and common efforts to address global challenges, including Russia's war in Ukraine. It will be the second meeting between the two presidents at the White House. As President Biden meets his Mexican counterpart, First Lady Dr. Jill Biden is facing backlash from the Latino community. She compared Latinos to breakfast tacos. The statement was meant to complement their diversity, but it didn't work. Here are the details. Dr. Jill Biden spoke in San Antonio at the annual conference of Unidos U.S. She talked about the diversity of the Latino community, comparing it to breakfast tacos. She also mispronounced the word bodega, the convenience stores that are often run by Latinos in New York City. The diversity of this community, as distinct as the bogodas of the Bronx, as beautiful as the blossoms of Miami, and as unique as the breakfast tacos here in San Antonio, is your strength. 
The National Association of Hispanic Journalists responded to Biden's statement in a tweet saying, NAHJ encourages the First Lady and her communications team to take time to better understand the complexities of our people and communities. We are not tacos. Florida Senator Marco Rubio also seemed to respond to the incident. He updated his profile picture to a picture of a taco. And Arizona Representative Andy Biggs also responded. He said, no wonder Hispanics are fleeing the Democratic Party. One example of Hispanics fleeing the Democratic Party is in the Texas's 34th Congressional District, near the San Antonio area, where the First Lady gave her speech. The district had a special congressional election in June. The district stretches from just east of San Antonio down to the southern border at the Rio Grande. It's mostly Hispanic and was a blue district for the past century. Republican Mayra Flores won the special election. We reached out to the White House to ask for an explanation of the First Lady's remarks, but didn't hear back before broadcast. The First Lady's office responded this morning to backlash over the comment. Spokesman Michael LaRosa tweeted, The First Lady apologizes that her words conveyed anything but pure admiration and love for the Latino community. Now we turn to border security. A litany of problems have arisen from people and drugs illegally entering the U.S. recently. That includes MS-13 gang members and sex offenders apprehended in Texas early last month. And leaders in Florida are saying that border drug smuggling is the cause of the tragic overdose of nine people in a rural part of the state. Our next guest is a drug enforcement officer. He explains what needs to be done to address drugs coming into the country. Please welcome Derek Maltz, who is a retired DEA special agent in charge. Thank you for making the time today, Derek. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. I want to know, how important is it for the U.S. to secure its borders, given that a record 5,000 pounds of meth was seized on the southern border on Thursday? Well, first of all, we not only do we have all this meth, but we have the deadly poisonous fentanyl that's killing American kids at record levels. Historic numbers of kids are being killed from this poison coming from these Mexican filthy labs. But the thing is about the border is right now it's wide open. We have an invasion in the country. We have individuals from over 150 countries coming into America looking for a free way of life. But it's a national security concern because actually they're all over all the cities and our kids are dying at record levels. The Met seizure that happened, 5,000 pounds, that's huge. But we had 17,500 pounds seized in November. We're getting hit with record level seizures of all drugs. But unfortunately, the illicit drug supply right now is tainted with poisonous fentanyl. And what can be done to deter these cartels from bringing these drugs over? Well, for one, we have to have some conversation out of the White House. Right now, there's no discussion about fentanyl poisonings throughout America. This week, we have the president of Mexico coming in to meet with President Biden. So we'll see what discussions take place. But we have the humanitarian crisis, a public health crisis, and a national security crisis, especially with the fentanyl that's coming across the border. So we have to step up the game. We have to have a sense of urgency. We have to educate the communities in America. We have to speak to the kids. We have to develop role models. We have to treat all these opioid-addicted people in America. But most importantly, we have to destroy the supply production labs in Mexico. Certainly addressing this at the source is important. And what do you think about the punishment that should be dished out to these drug traffickers? Well, they have to be held accountable. Right now we have... In Mexico, this hugs for thugs policy, that's the way the Mexican president addresses this monumental concern for the world because the drugs are not only coming to the U.S., but they're around the world from the cartels. But 
in America, we have to stop with these liberal policies and letting people out on the street. Crime is escalating through the roof right now in America. Violent crime, you can't even walk through so many cities because the criminals are not being punished. They need to be taken off the street, put in jail, and out of the public because they're destroying our cities. Speaking of incarceration, what's your reaction to the quick release of drug traffickers in California who were in possession of 150,000 fentanyl pills? Well, those 150,000 pills could have killed a lot of Americans. So shame on the judicial system out in California, especially the judge. Now they've issued warrants for these two individuals because now all of a sudden they want them. After they, they've done some homework and they realized, you know, the type of people they just let back out on the street, okay, they should be held accountable for distributing this poison, which is killing kids and killing Americans at record levels. And that's the problem right now. We have to be tougher on crime. We have too many cities in America that are soft on crime. That's not going to work. And it's getting worse. And anybody that's watching the news, anybody that's walking in big cities today can see the impacts of these, these criminal networks that are dominating our country right now. So hopefully people start learning from their mistakes and start holding people accountable. But once again, I will say this. Right now, we're losing our law and order in this country, okay? And that's a big problem for our national security as well. Derek Maltz, retired DEA, special agent in charge. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. A new poll found most voters in the Democratic primary would prefer a candidate other than President Biden for 2024. They gave his age and job performance as the main reasons why they would support a different candidate. The poll was conducted by the New York Times-Siena College. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre responded late Monday, saying President Biden is not solely focused on polling. I would also say from that very same poll, um, there were 92 percent of uh, Democrats who uh, support this president as well. Look, you know, not to be not get into, uh, you know, politics from here or get into a, any political analysis. One thing to note, Jean-Pierre appears to have misstated Biden's approval among Democrats. According to The New York Times, Biden's approval rating stands at 70 percent among fellow Democrats. Coming up, Texas is struggling under a heat wave, but the state's power operator managed to avoid imposing rolling blackouts. Find out how the state is conserving energy. And a major network outage at one of Canada's biggest telecom operators shut banking, transportation, and government access for millions on Friday. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. On Monday, NASA unveiled one of the first full-color images from the James Webb Space Telescope. It's the deepest picture of the universe ever taken, captured by the largest space telescope ever built. The image shows how a massive group of galaxy clusters acts as a magnifying glass for the objects behind them. It's called gravitational lensing, and it resulted in Webb's first deep field view of incredibly old and distant galaxies, some of them never seen before. The galaxy cluster in the image appears as it did 4.6 billion years ago. The $9 billion infrared telescope built for NASA by aerospace giant Northrop Grumman is expected to revolutionize astronomy by allowing scientists to peer farther than before and with greater clarity into the cosmos to the dawn of the known universe. 
We have an update and some analysis on the New York City Bodega murder charge saga. Video shows the clerk, Jose Alba, was stabbed by his menace's female partner during the scuffle. We hear some perspective on the incident from the leader of an organization that raises funds for wrongfully charged police officers. And a warning to viewers, this footage is graphic. Please welcome Jason Johnson, who is the president of the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund. Thanks for making the time today, Jason. Good to be with you. Let's take a closer look at the second-degree murder charge for the NYC bodega worker Jose Alba after he stabbed an ex-convict who menaced him. Break this down for us. What constitutes self-defense in cases like this? Well, generally speaking, you know, you, you hear you have a worker in a bodega who's, uh, you know, that, that can be a, a dangerous job. People come in there that are unhappy. Sometimes they get robbed. And so workers sometimes are prepared for that eventuality to be faced with that kind of threat. Uh, in this case, Mr. Alba, you know, had a knife nearby, uh, not by his own doing. Um, you know, there was a customer that came in that wasn't happy for one reason or another, sent her boyfriend in there essentially to threaten, potentially to assault Mr. Alba. Uh, comes in and, I mean, it's a much larger, stronger person. Mr. Alba, 61 years old. You, I mean, you can just see by watching the video that he was, um, you know, the, uh, the, the man who came in is very aggressive, uh, putting him in fear. And essentially, if you're in reasonable fear for your life, then use of deadly force is, is, um, is permissible under the law. And so I think anyone who watches that video gets the feeling like he was in fear for his life, uh, very legitimately and reasonably in this case. So what do you think should have been happening with the charges? Well, of course, you know, whenever something like this happens, there has to be a thorough investigation. And so uh, it's a police investigation that normally would play itself out uh, in the normal course. Eventually, there might be a grand jury presentation where, uh, you know, a panel of 23 citizens of New York City uh, would be in panel to hear the evidence and make a decision as to whether this was reasonable self-defense or whether there should be criminal charges. And if so, what those charges would be. But, uh, you know, Al Alvin Bragg, uh, within days of the incident, just decides to charge him with second-degree murder, which results in, you know, Mr. Alba having to spend some time in Rikers, having to raise money to get his bail reduced, which is would be unusual for, for, for Bragg to push for high bail. But in this case, he did. Here we're dealing with a criminal defendant with no criminal history uh, and really should just be released on his own recognizance. Shouldn't have been charged. But if he was, should be released on his own cognizance recognizance because he's not a criminal. He's an ordinary citizen trying to defend himself. So what is the signal to other potential robbers and criminals in New York City? Well, you know, look, I, I just recently, I don't live in New York City. I recently visited there just last week, and um, I was shocked. It was my first visit since since COVID, and I was shocked at the just feeling of, of disorder and a lack of safety, even downtown um, in Manhattan. You know, I, I think the message that, that that sends to criminals is that it's a lax approach. You can kind of do what you want. If you go and aggressively approach a, a bodega uh, a worker and threaten them, that actually, if they try to defend themselves, then they will be prosecuted and you don't, you really have nothing to fear. I think that's the message it sends. Jason, tell us more about your report called Justice for Sale. So uh, we, my organization, Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund, uh, we focused on this issue of, of rogue progressive prosecutors. We've issued a couple of reports, but our most recent report, as you, as you indicated, Justice for Sale, tracks uh, the George Soros connection between uh, George Soros money being used to elect 
social justice or progressive prosecutors across the country. We can't, we, we, uh, uh, according to our report, we believe there are about 75 such prosecutors. Alvin Bragg is one of them, and he received about a million dollars from George Soros and George Soros' interests in order to be elected. And it's really going to take voters standing up to this approach, this radical, upended approach in our criminal justice system in order for things to change. It happened in San Francisco. We look forward that, for that same thing to happen in cities across America. Jason Johnson, Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. New York wants to make sure its residents are prepared for a nuclear attack. The Department of Emergency Management launched a public service announcement on what to do if there is such an event. But the likelihood of one happening is very low, and the department says no specific threat has been made to the city. The PSA comes after a survey reported New Yorkers felt least prepared for a no-notice event like a nuclear attack. The video features three steps to take if an incident occurs. Step one, get inside. Step two, head to a basement or middle of the building and remove all outer clothing. Step three, monitor updates from the government and media. The video does not address what to do if one requires medical attention or food. The Russia-Ukraine war has brought renewed attention to nuclear weapons as the Kremlin in February placed its nuclear deterrence forces on high alert. In March, the White House announced that it had a team of experts providing briefings to NATO on what to do if such weapons are utilized. On Sunday, drivers crossing the Hudson River from New Jersey into New York will no longer have the option of paying their bridge toll the old-fashioned way. Instead, they'll have to go through an electronic tolling system. Drivers without electronic tolling system EasyPass will have their license plates photographed by overhead cameras. They will get bills sent to them by mail. The move from the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey comes as a way to help ease congestion at the bridge. It's the busiest of the three Hudson River crossings that the agency oversees. The George Washington Bridge is a crossing point not only to get into New York City, but also for drivers using Interstate 95. That highway runs north to south along the U.S. East Coast from Florida to Maine. The Port Authority said more than 49 million vehicles crossed eastbound over it last year. Trucks also use it to cross the Hudson River the most. The highest court in Massachusetts threw out a challenge to absentee voting rules brought by state Republicans. It's a move that allows voters to submit mail-in ballots without having to provide an excuse. Republicans argued that the state's Votes Act was unconstitutional because it needed voter approval. The party also argued that no-excuse voting by mail and early voting are bad ideas because they increase the likelihood of fraud. GOP attorney Michael Walsh argued that the measures go against the Massachusetts Constitution. He says that voters should only be allowed to cast mail or absentee ballots if they are disabled, away from home on Election Day, or possess religious objections to voting in person. Mass Live reports two plaintiffs in the lawsuit say they will ask the U.S. Supreme Court to review the ruling. Liberal groups have praised the new ruling. The CDC says they found a widely used herbicide in the majority of urine samples collected from children and adults in the United States. That herbicide has been linked to cancer. The health agency released the results of its National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey last month. It shows that over 80% of urine samples it tested contain glyphosate. It is widely used in herbicides and is the active ingredient in the popular Roundup brand weed killer. Researchers say food is the main route of exposure to it for children aged 18 and under. The Environmental Protection Agency says the chemical is not a risk when products are used according to their labels. The agency also says it is unlikely to be a human carcinogen. But some experts warn that the chemical's use has led to an increase in autism, diabetes, cancer, allergies, and other chronic conditions.
A heat wave in Texas is creating a high demand for energy. The state's power grid operator held off from imposing rolling blackouts on Monday using voluntary cutbacks and appeals to conserve energy. Meanwhile, city agencies like the Houston Fire Department developed plans in case of a power outage. Here's more on the story. As triple-digit temperatures scorch the state of Texas, homes and businesses are cranking up their air conditioners to escape the heat wave. But the state's population and economy have been growing, and demand for power is only rising. It's repeatedly breaking all-time records this year. That also means mounting pressure on the Texas power grid, which is on its own, unlike every other state, which share their power. Operator ERCOT, which stands for the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, oversees power to more than 26 million people in the state, or 90% of the state's power load. On Monday, it warned of a potential shortage in reserves with no easy fix. Still, it's held off from imposing rolling blackouts across the state. Instead, ERCOT is relying on voluntary cutbacks and appeals to conserve energy. Large industrial power users, including miners of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, are doing just that. While ERCOT declined to comment on specific company power usage or facilities, it said there are about 10 cryptocurrency mining facilities connected to the grid, a number it only expects to grow over the next four years. Texas can't seek much in the way of help with its struggles, as Michael Weber, a professor in energy resources at the University of Texas at Austin, explains. Most states in the United States are part of larger regional grids. So the states of like Oklahoma or Louisiana, when they have a power shortage, can import power from neighboring states. Or if they have excess power, can export that power to the other states. For the most part, Texas can't. We're on our own. And that's because we're afraid of the federal regulators and they don't want federal regulators looking at our market too much. Texas last called for energy conservation in May during an earlier heat wave that drove up prices to more than $4,000 a megawatt hour after six generators tripped offline. One megawatt can power about 200 homes on a hot summer day in Texas. Earlier this year, ERCOT assured residents it had enough reserves to meet demand. A major network outage at Canada's Rogers Telecommunications shut down banking, transportation and government access for millions on Friday. It drew outrage from customers and added to criticism of the industry dominance of one of Canada's biggest telecom operators. Entity's Andrew Thomas has more. Canadians working from home crowded into cafes and public libraries that still offered internet access Friday. Some lingered outside hotels to get a signal. Retailers' cashless pay systems went down, and banks reported issues with ATM services. Sometimes your phone is out, or your cable, or your internet is out, but the entire system is down. And, um, you know, when the phones go down and the internet and everything goes down at the same time, it's a pretty scary thing for a lot of people, you know? Like, what happens in an emergency? What do you do? The interruption began around 4.30 a.m. Eastern Time, and was Rogers' second in 15 months. A quarter of Canada's observable internet connectivity was knocked out. That's according to the NetBlocks monitoring group. Rogers has not identified a cause. I don't know, obviously, what's causing uh, the network blackout, but I hear it's quite widespread, and obviously that's an issue, and most people are working from home. Romanus Olafor went to Rogers' office to look for answers. You're expecting them to find solution to the problem today. Otherwise, from tomorrow now, people will get more angry. By then, they will find another alternative, either to switch to another network or to claim damages. It's a very big something. 
Rogers did not say when service might be restored. Rogers is the top provider in Ontario. With about 10 million wireless subscribers and over 2 million retail internet subscribers. Along with BCE Inc. and Telescorp, Rogers controls 90% of the market share in Canada. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Just ahead, the euro slid to a 20-year low and made it almost equal in value to the dollar. The slide is driven by concerns an energy crisis will bring on a recession. And some Russians are looking to avoid mandatory military service as the war continues in Ukraine. But military service is mandatory for men 18 to 27. Find out what they're doing after the break. slid to a 20-year low and came close to parity against the dollar on Monday. This is driven by concerns that an energy crisis will tip the region into a recession. The U.S. dollar was boosted by expectations that the Federal Reserve will hike rates aggressively. The euro tumbled Monday to its weakest level since December 2002. William Rind, founder and CEO of Granite Shares, says the drop reflects the fact that Europe is bearing the brunt of the crisis in Ukraine. Unfortunately for Europe, the effect of certainly Russia-Ukraine has been more amplified um, than it has been here in the States. And certainly energy prices are much, much higher, relatively speaking, in Europe um, than here. So the impact of higher commodity prices has been felt more in Europe than it has in the States so far. And some fear it could soon get worse. The biggest single pipeline carrying Russian gas to Germany, the Nord Stream 1, began annual maintenance on Monday, with flows expected to stop for 10 days. Governments, markets and companies are worried the shutdown might be extended because of the war in Ukraine. But while the euro is sinking, the U.S. dollar is soaring. The U.S. currency has gained on expectations that the Fed will continue to aggressively raise rates as it tackles inflation. The Fed is expected to lift rates by another 75 basis points at its July meeting. The strong dollar is good news for U.S. travelers going overseas this summer, where everything from hotels to restaurants to shopping will be at a discount from prices just a few months ago. European Union finance ministers today formally approved Croatia becoming the 20th member of the euro common currency beginning in 2023. Croatia has been an EU member since 2013. The European Council adopted three legal acts required to allow the country to introduce the euro on January 1st. The European Commission's vice president said the use of the euro would bring economic benefits to Croatia, which is the first country to join the euro since Lithuania in 2015. To adopt the euro, Croatia had to fulfill criteria of price and exchange rate stability, sound public finances, and moderate long-term interest rates. Croatia has been an independent country since 1991 when it left Yugoslavia. Neighboring Slovenia is also an ex-Yugoslav republic. It is now an EU member and adopted the euro in 2007. Some lawyers and rights advocates say there is an increased number of young Russian men looking to avoid the country's mandatory military service. They don't want to participate in the conflict with Ukraine, which began last February. Here's more. Danila Davidov said he left Russia within weeks of the Kremlin sending troops into Ukraine because he feared having to fight in a war he doesn't support. 
The 22-year-old left St. Petersburg and is now working in Kazakhstan. We feared President Putin would declare a mobilization and that everyone, young and old, would be called up to the army. I absolutely didn't want to go and fight. Davidov is among what some lawyers and rights advocates say is an increased number of young Russian men looking to avoid the country's mandatory military service since the conflict with Ukraine. That is despite the risk of facing fines or up to two years in prison. In Russia, military service is mandatory for young men aged 18 to 27. Reuters spoke to seven men seeking to avoid signing up. At first I avoided the military commission, but in the end they kept getting hold of me. I turned to lawyers and with their help, I managed to put off the moment when they'd take me into the army indefinitely. The Kremlin referred questions about draft avoidance to the defense ministry, which did not respond to a request for comment. Ukraine and its Western backers see Moscow's actions, currently focused on taking territory in eastern Ukraine as an imperial-style land grab. Russian President Vladimir Putin is betting on a huge professional army that the West says has sustained significant losses in the war. If the army cannot recruit enough contract soldiers, Putin's options would include using conscripts, mobilizing Russian society or scaling back his ambition. Although Putin has repeatedly said conscripts should not fight the Ukraine conflict, the defense ministry in early March said some already had. There are also signs that Russia is looking for more men to fight. In May, Putin signed a law that removed the upper age limit of 40 for people wanting to enlist in the Russian military. Still to come, the hearse carrying former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe passed through downtown Tokyo. Huge crowds thronged the streets to bid a final farewell. Thousands of depositors protested for their frozen money. It marks the largest mass protest in China in recent years, although it was dispersed by violence. All that and more right here on NTD News. The hearse carrying former Japanese leader Shinzo Abe pulled through Tokyo after a private funeral today. The nation paid its last respects to the country's longest-serving prime minister. Here's more. A private funeral honoring former Japanese leader Shinzo Abe was held on Tuesday. After the ceremony, the hearse carrying his body drove through downtown Tokyo, bidding a final farewell to the country's longest-serving premier. The motorcade first departed from Zozoji Temple, where Abe's body had been kept since Monday. It passed through Nagatacho, Tokyo's political center, and a number of landmarks, including the prime minister's office and the parliament building. The public and officials packed the sidewalks with flowers in hand. Some shouted, clapped, and waved as a hearse rolled by. Others bowed in respect. Shinzo Abe served two terms as Japan's prime minister between 2012 and 2020. He was fatally shot during a campaign speech last Friday. Police identified an unemployed 41-year-old as the suspect. Grief has filled the nation in the wake of Abe's death. He was my favorite prime minister, so I came here to say goodbye. There was a sense of security when he was the prime minister and in charge of the country. 
We felt safe with him in charge. I was really supporting him, so this is really quite unfortunate. Abe was a very warm person with a good sense of humor. I think there aren't politicians like him in Japan or in the world, so I was supporting him. This is very unfortunate. South Korea's president paid his last respects at the Japanese embassy in Seoul. He bowed in silence in front of a memorial altar set up for Abe. He also conveyed his condolences to Japan's ambassador to South Korea, Koichi Ayaboshi. I would like to express my deepest sympathy to his bereaved families and the Japanese people. Thailand's prime minister visited the Japanese ambassador's residences in Thailand. He had earlier praised Abe for his lifelong dedication to public service. He called Abe's passing the loss of a great friend. Leaders from other Asian countries also signed letters of condolences on their respective lands, including Singapore's prime minister and his Cambodian counterpart. Violence erupted during a mass protest in one central Chinese city. Workers who resembled law enforcement arrived on scene to disperse the event, but were later seen beating certain demonstrators. Among those heard, pregnant women and disabled people. Here are the details. Zhengzhou, China. Thousands of bank customers gathered in front of the Central Bank of China in the city of Zhengzhou over the weekend. They were after their frozen savings. Some banks in China have been struggling to process withdrawals in recent months, leaving customers blocked from accessing their own money. Based on the latest update from local financial service authorities, deposit amounts under $7,500 can be paid out in advance. Others will need to wait for further instructions. But China affairs expert Gordon Chang says it's still not guaranteed those in the first group will get their savings. I imagine some people will, but many people will not. And, and that is going to be this crisis, that um, people who have thought that they, you know, their life savings were safe, they aren't. The weekend demonstration marks the biggest mass protest in China in recent years. But as soon as the event began, a group of unidentified men in white shirts arrived on the scene to stamp down the gathering. Some of them were seen battering demonstrators. Miss Zhang witnessed the events. She says she recognized some of the perpetrators as local police in plain clothes. From 5 o'clock in the morning, we had two to 3,000 people arrive one after another, and then there were many uniformed police officers and many plainclothes ones on the side of Zhengzhou, Henan province, and they numbered about three to 4,000 and then surrounded us. Before the protest clamped down, some protesters were heard shouting, give me my money back. Others held banners with slogans like anti-oppression, demand democracy, and rule of law. One eyewitness said each demonstrator had to face off against three perpetrators. This is the typical playbook of the Communist Party, to uh, intimidate, to use uh, force. We have old people, children, disabled people, pregnant women among the demonstrators. Once these people in white and black clothes came, no matter who you were, first of all, they directly dragged you away. We had a disabled person sitting in a wheelchair who was also violently carried away by them. And then pregnant women were also taken away by them. Protests related to the frozen bank assets started in May. Several rural banks in Hunan and Anhui provinces shut down their withdrawal functions. Altogether, nearly $5.8 billion is blocked from getting withdrawn.
The official explanation says the problem is due to internal system upgrades. Hundreds of households have been affected. Reports say some people with severe illnesses have even passed away as a result, since they were unable to cover their medical fees and get treatment. As for what's behind the bank issue... China's going through a debt crisis, and part of that debt crisis is that the banks are illiquid. It was in front of the People's Bank of China, which is the central bank. So people understand that the crisis is not just any one institution. It's a crisis which is systemic. We can see, for instance, that China's large property developers, like Evergrande, but also others, are defaulting. The other big property developers, um, although not nearly as indebted, have basically can't pay back their debts anyway. In the end, reports show the weekend demonstrators were forcibly transferred to detention centers in Zhengzhou. Details said they were released later that afternoon. An update to a story we reported on last week. A former scientist at the University of Texas signed a potentially illegal agreement with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Now the university has gotten back to us explaining their point of view. A memorandum of understanding stated that both parties, the Wuhan Institute and the University of Texas, could request that all records, such as files and documents, be destroyed without backup. Congressman Chip Roy said that this violates state and federal laws that require the retention of records. In a statement to NTD, the university acknowledges that they signed a document with a poorly drafted confidentiality provision that was in potential conflict with the law. They say they terminated the agreement after they found out about the provision, and they confirmed that no documents have been destroyed. The statement also says that the university is disappointed in the Chinese regime's lack of transparency and cooperation regarding investigation into the origins of the CCP virus. And they say there was no collaboration with Chinese scientists in virus research. French President Emmanuel Macron has moved to pull the French Indo-Pacific closer to Paris. He announced a new political appointment to his enlarged 42-member government. RNZ reports that the French Prime Minister officially appointed Sonia Baquez to the post of Secretary of Citizenship in the Interior Ministry. This is the first time in 50 years that a politician from the South Pacific French territory of New Caledonia has been appointed to the French government. Including Baquez in Paris's affairs will cement the interests of France's Pacific territories within Macron's government. 1.5 million French citizens and 8,000 soldiers are situated in French territories in the Indian Ocean or the South Pacific. France's shift in focus to the Indo-Pacific region comes after ongoing tensions with the Chinese Communist Party led to the launch of France's Indo-Pacific strategy in 2018. The French government called Beijing a systemic rival, saying it had a vision of the international order that was profoundly different, particularly with regard to human rights. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Coming up, voting for a new British prime minister starts this week, but it will take until September for conservative lawmakers to announce the next head of state. NATO-grade security and self-sufficient, a Swift startup is offering their clients luxury underground bunkers underneath their existing estates. Find out more after the short break.
Britain is scheduled to announce a new prime minister by September 5th, but the voting for the new head of state is going to start as early as this week. We have agreed the way forward uh, for the leadership election. Nominations will open and close tomorrow. We'll have a first ballot on Wednesday. So far, 11 candidates have thrown their hat in the ring to succeed Boris Johnson as leader of the ruling Conservative Party and Prime Minister. Candidates need at least 20 nominations from the party's over 350 lawmakers even to proceed to the first round of votes on Wednesday. Anyone who has received less than 30 votes will be eliminated before another vote on Thursday. Most candidates are campaigning with the promise of heavy tax cuts. Outgoing Prime Minister Boris Johnson quit after losing support from his own lawmakers and ministers following a series of scandals. Heathrow Airport is asking airlines to stop selling any more tickets for travel this summer. It also announced a cap on passengers allowed to fly from the airport. That will limit passengers to 100,000 a day until September 11th. That's as it struggles to cope with high demand and a lack of resources. CEO John Holland Kay announced the difficult decision in an open letter to passengers. He wrote, over the past few weeks, as departing passenger numbers have regularly exceeded 100,000 a day, we have started to see periods when service drops to a level that is not acceptable. Our colleagues are going above and beyond to get as many passengers away as possible, but we cannot put them at risk for their own safety and well-being. Holland Kay said Heathrow's latest forecast showed an excess number of seats had already been sold. Therefore, airlines needed to stop selling tickets now. The latest statistics available show that in 2018, the daily number of passengers going through Heathrow was nearly 220,000. That number was split between arrivals and departures. In an uncertain world with a war going on, the idea of having an underground bunker beneath an estate could bring peace of mind. A startup company in Switzerland is offering just that. Here are the details. Swiss startup Opidum is offering the mega-rich, safe and secure NATO-grade security underneath their existing estate. The concept, called Opidum, promises a totally bespoke, super-secure, self-sufficient bunker that makes its own water, air and electricity. The technology is the heart of Opidum and it's to, it's to supply uh, the Opidum with uh, energy, uh, uh, fresh air, water and supplies for as long as, long as necessary. Uh, it has uh, more than several operational modes uh, ranging from uh, the situation uh, either outside or, or what's, needed, uh, what's needed for the inhabitants. Uh, and what's important... Uh... Each opidum can provide living accommodations and leisure facilities while leaving almost no visible trace of its presence on the surface. The company claims Opidum is fully airtight and gas-tight and can be completely isolated from the outside atmosphere if required. The main area is the living area. It's basically similar to what you can find in above-ground residence and it serves for the primary use in case of, in case of threat. But we have an optimistic view of the future and uh, we want Opidum to bring added value for everyday peacetime use of the property. Opidum adds value to the owner's primary residence by offering facilities including a private art gallery, secure meeting lounge, comfortable bedroom suites, bespoke spa, and other leisure amenities. The Opidum uh, shall bring uh, a peace of mind knowing the family is protected at, uh, in whatever may arise. 
But at the same time, uh, there are multiple uses for everyday peacetime use that enhances the the use of the of the of the primer primer property as uh, as the as the sacred storage and, and meeting rooms. And Opadom says they are targeting individuals in the U.S., Europe, and the UAE with a net worth of more than 100 million dollars. Such a bunker costs at least 10 million dollars. The most luxurious design offers a total of 10,000 square feet. Coming up, Wimbledon winners celebrate victory in their home countries. Novak Djokovic spoke to elated fans at Belgrade City Hall, and Elena Rybakina got a big welcome in Kazakhstan. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. Novak Djokovic celebrated his Wimbledon win in Belgrade to fervent fans. He spoke about his joy. The female winner celebrated with fans in Kazakhstan. Trophies are trophies. They are fleeting. But these moments where we share the success together, where we connect on various levels, is something I will be carrying in my heart to the end of my life. Thank you so much. Thousands of people gathered near Belgrade City Hall to give a hero's welcome to Wimbledon winner Novak Djokovic. Djokovic won the Australian Open, French Open and Wimbledon titles in 2021, but he was unable to defend his Australian Open crown due to his refusal to be vaccinated against COVID-19. He said the ordeal in Australia strengthened his resolve to continue battling for top honors where he can. The 35-year-old has won the last four editions of Wimbledon. Elena Rybakina arrived at Kazakhstan's capital after winning the women's singles Wimbledon title. It marks the first player from Kazakhstan to win a Grand Slam singles title. She was born in Moscow, so she would have been excluded from competition had she not switched allegiance to Kazakhstan in 2018 for better funding and support. Wimbledon banned participation from Belarusian and Russian players due to the war in Ukraine. Arthur Stone, a 5,000-year-old chambered tomb in Britain, is being excavated. It's named in honor of King Arthur. That's the mythical ruler of Camelot who, according to legend, pulled the magical sword Excalibur from a stone. The excavation is from a partnership between the University of Manchester and English Heritage, a charity that focuses on preserving historic buildings. Researchers say they hope the project will shed light on that part of British history. Arthur Stone is in the West Midlands of England, close to the Welsh border. The project leader says it's likely the tomb was used as a resting location for human bodies, which were left to decay and then later rearranged when only clean bones remained. A TikTok video showing dozens of beachgoers running and jumping out of the way of two sea lions on Friday has generated nearly 10 million views. It sparked conversations about whether the animals were going after people and reclaiming the picturesque cove. But a sea lion expert at SeaWorld said what he sees is normal sea lion behavior for this time of year when males are sparring over females as breeding season starts. He said the male flopping along at rapid fire pace as he darted around people was likely his fleeing from the other male. That male was closer to the water's edge and was chasing him. That's because they were fighting over which females they could get in the water. Still, he said, if a sea lion is barreling in your direction, don't just stand by and watch. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email address on screen. We'd love to hear from you. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.